Good morning. If you will turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21. We have two sermons left in the book of Hebrews. And um, I pray that this one will be uh, an encouragement to you as we look at these two verses. As you find your place in God's word, if you'll stand with me as we honor the reading of it. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that you will use this passage of Scripture to strengthen, encourage, and give hope to the saints. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever attended a typical prayer meeting, then you probably know how they usually go. I'd like to request prayer for my great aunt's second cousin's roommate from college. She has a runny nose. Or something along those lines. In my personal experience, prayer meetings tend to focus on physical ailments more than anything else, and and our Wednesday night prayer meetings aren't exempt from this. You can look at the prayer sheet that's on the back table, and you can see that... There's a long section of health concerns for which we are praying. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with praying for the physical conditions of others. The apostle has just asked for prayer for his physical condition in verse 19 of Hebrews. Whether it's a sickness or imprisonment or something else, whatever it is that's keeping him away from the church, he's asking for prayer that it would pass. There are a few places in Paul's other letters in the New Testament where physical needs are mentioned. I imagine with the desire that they be prayed over. So please don't think I'm chastising any of us for spending time praying for the physical needs of others. There is nothing wrong with that. However, if we're not careful, we can become so caught up in the physical needs of others that we lose sight of what really matters. If we pray for the physical needs of a family member who is lost, but we fail to pray for her salvation, or that God would use her infirmity to bring her to Christ, then we failed to pray for the most important thing. If we pray for a church member who is suffering from a sickness, and we pray only that that sickness would be healed, but we fail to ask God to to help him to trust in Christ more, or that God would use that sickness for his good and for God's glory, then we failed to pray for the most important thing. Because we can pray that God would heal every one of our sicknesses and provide for every one of our physical needs, but we are still going to grow old and one day we are all going to die. And you will Stand before a holy, living God and give an account of your life. Everyone in this room will someday die and stand before God. So in light of this reality, we must remember to pray for the things that truly matter. We must remember to pray for the eternal things. That's what we find the apostle doing in the passage before us this morning. As the book of Hebrews draws to a close, in light of everything he's taught us in the letter, the author prays 
a final word of benediction over his readers. And since we are included in his readership, this prayer includes you today. Last week we saw in in verses 18 and 19 that the apostle asked for prayer for himself. And now here in verses 20 and 21, he prays for us. He prays a benediction. Your Bible may even divide this section with the heading, benediction. What is a benediction? What is it? It's one of those church words that no one knows what it means. We just use it and have no idea what we're talking about. A benediction is a formal prayer of blessing. It's a formal prayer of blessing. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, he writes, benedictions have more weight than a petitioner's supplication. It's more than just a prayer. It's, it's, it's more. It's got more authority. It's got more weight. Because a benediction, it confers benefits through a minister authorized to speak from and for God. It confers benefits because the person giving the benediction has authority to speak for God. And so benedictions, he goes on to say in New Testament letters, extend the Old Testament tradition of priestly blessing on Israel with a threefold pronouncement of the Lord's name to convey blessing, protection, favor, grace, and peace. Think of the benediction prayer that Aaron prayed over the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 6. Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's more than just a wish. It's more than just a desire. It's a blessing. And there is a certainty behind it that says that 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 what is being spoken will be accomplished. Uh, Paul prays benedictions at the end of several of his letters in Romans and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. You can find benedictions. Uh, who can forget the, the, the amazing benediction prayer of Jude 24 and 25? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Not just something hoped for, but a prayer expressing with certainty from the inspired writers of Scripture of what God will do for his people. And in the same way, Hebrews closes with a benediction prayer, a blessing upon the readers of the book. And it draws upon multiple themes that we've studied as we've gone through the book. It's pulling on all kinds of threads, the blood of Christ, the eternal covenant, the lordship of Jesus, the importance of doing the will of God. The apostle ends his magnificent letter with this magnificent prayer. And it's a prayer that I would encourage you to memorize. I would encourage you, memorize this benediction prayer. Memorize it for your own edification and encouragement on those days when you're struggling. You can remember this benediction and you can be encouraged. It's a prayer that we can divide into two clauses, two verses, two clauses, two points, two certainties. And they're meant to encourage us as we strive to believe and obey all that has been written to us in the book. And so that's what I hope we will see today in this benediction as we close out the book of Hebrews. Two certainties. Two certainties from this closing benediction prayer. The first certainty is in verse 20. Certainty number one. God has accomplished redemption for you through Christ. God has accomplished redemption for you through Christ. That's the first certainty, and it's a foundational certainty. Because of this first certainty, what God has already done, we can have the second certainty, which is this. Certainty number two, God will complete his work in you through Christ. All right, so let's look at these two verses this morning. Verse 20. Certainty number one, God 
has accomplished redemption for you through Christ. If you've been here for the entire series on Hebrews, or even if you've been here for quite a while as we've been going through the book, then you know we've learned a lot. <laughs> we've learned a lot in this book. We've covered a lot. We've studied the deity of Christ. We've seen that he is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament. We've studied his superiority to, to Moses and Joshua, to Aaron, to Melchizedek. We've seen how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and shadows of the priest and the temple and the, the animal sacrifices. We've seen how Jesus is the mediator of a new, better covenant than the old covenant. We've seen how his death on the cross is the perfect once for all time, unrepeatable sacrifice for the sins of his people. A lot of big ideas, a lot of weighty theology. But this theology is not abstract. This is not just theology that is there so that we can fill our heads with more knowledge, so that we can, we can feel intellectually superior. It's not meant to be abstract theology. Every theological point that the apostle has made in the entire book has been for practical purposes. Because remember, these believers to whom the book is written are being threatened with persecution, the temptation to leave Christianity and, and to return to the temple in Jerusalem with all of its ceremonies and its laws and its sacrifices. The apostle's purpose has been to exalt the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and to warn these Christians not to leave Jesus don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to the old covenant because Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. He is the fulfillment of all of the, the things that the Old Testament taught. So don't fall away. That's a message that we still need today because the temptations to leave, to fall away are ever present in your life. And so you need the same message. You, you need the same encouragement. Jesus is better. So don't fall away from Jesus. And so in his benediction prayer, he re-emphasizes this certainty. Look at verse 20. He writes, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. All of his arguments are concluded. He said everything that he's going to say to express the, the superiority of Christ and the need to, to follow him. Now he simply states the fact. He simply states what he has he's striven to convince us in these 13 chapters. God has definitively accomplished redemption for his people through Christ. This is a past objective truth. It happened. There is, therefore, no further need for temple or priest or sacrifices in order to approach God. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. As we walk through this verse, let's ask three questions about this redemption as, as we see this, this stated objective fact. Let's ask and answer three questions about this Redemption. Uh, who has accomplished it? How has it been accomplished? And what is it that makes this redemption so certain for us? That, that's all in this one verse, in verse 20. That, uh, who has accomplished this redemption? Well, we read at the very beginning that the God of peace has done this. That's how the benediction begins. Now may the God of peace... Peace is referenced several times in the book of Hebrews, but most noticeably in chapter 12, verse 14, where we're told, strive for peace with everyone. We are commanded to, to pursue peace, to, to strive for it. And we can because God has already accomplished peace. He is the God of peace. 
He is the God of peace. He's called this all over Paul's letters. You can find this all throughout Paul's letters. He calls God the God of peace. And in the context of the persecutions and the hardships that these believers are experiencing, this should bring great comfort. They may not have peace in this world, but they have peace with and through God. Robert Paul Martin, in his commentary, he writes, he is the God whose presence is no longer the object of dread and fear, but whose throne may be approached boldly and freely by his people who need grace to help in time of need. It's this God. It's this God. It's the God of peace who bestows the blessing of this benediction. But how has this God accomplish this redemption? How has this God accomplished this peace? When we continue in the verse and we see it's by bringing again Jesus from the dead. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Interesting, throughout Hebrews, the resurrection is assumed. He is high priest not because of genealogy, but by the power of an indestructible life. Um, He is able to save to the uttermost his people because he always lives to make intercession for them. But this is the first explicit mention of the resurrection in the book of Hebrews. It's always assumed that he's died, but he's alive. But here it actually says that he's been resurrected. And the word used here, brought again, is interesting. It's not the word for raised. It doesn't say that God raised Jesus from the dead. It says he he brought again Jesus from the dead. It's only used one other time in the entire New Testament in in connection with the resurrection. Uh, It instead means to bring in or lead out. Its most common reference, its most common occurrences are actually in the book of Acts where the word is translated to set sail. Every time it says to set sail, it's this word that we see here, brought again. What I'm trying to impress upon you is that this is not the word that you would expect the apostle to use here. It's not a word that that really has any kind of, of reference to resurrection. God led Jesus out of the dead, but it's a word chosen with a purpose. It's a word chosen with a purpose. When paired with this description of Jesus as the shepherd of the sheep, the word draws out a parallel passage from Isaiah 63:11. So let's, let's turn, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. The word choices of the New Testament writers are not accidental. They are intended with specific purpose to draw our attention to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 11. We'll look through verse 14. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of? That's the same word in the Greek Septuagint as we find in chapter 13. Where is he who brought them up? Brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock. We have that idea of the shepherd. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name, which is the same idea that we're going to see at the end of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. Where is he who through Moses led his people up out of the Red Sea, who shepherded them? so that he might make for himself a glorious name. Once again, like in chapter 3, the apostle in Hebrews chapter 13 is presenting Jesus as a greater Moses. 
He is the greater Moses. As Moses, like a shepherd, led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through and out of the Red Sea and into the Promised Land, so Jesus, not just any shepherd, but the great shepherd, we could translate it as the mega shepherd, he leads his people out of slavery to sin and death and brings them into the new heavens and new earth. The exodus in the past, the exodus was a shadow of the greater exodus accomplished at the cross. And because God has done this by raising Jesus up from the dead, we can have tremendous hope for the future. And this is not in the abstract. He's saying Jesus has been brought up from the dead. This greater exodus has happened. It's an objective reality. But how can we be so certain of this redemption? How can we be so certain of this redemption? If he did it by, if the God of peace did this by bringing Jesus up again from the dead, how can we be so certain that this redemption is, is for us? It's because it was accomplished by or through the blood of the eternal covenant. Go back to Hebrews chapter 13. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This eternal covenant is the covenant of grace, uh, some theologians will call it, the covenant of grace, or the new covenant. The new covenant is at the very heart. It, it literally is at the center of the book of Hebrews. So let's look at it one more time, Hebrews chapter 8. Let's be reminded of the New Covenant, because if you're not familiar with the New Covenant, you need to be. This is, at, this is the, the heart of the book of Hebrews, because it really is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. What's it mean to be a Christian? It means that you're in the New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, that's the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no, no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. He finds fault with the people, not with the covenant. He finds fault with the people. The people can't keep the covenant. God has made this covenant with them. He's given them his law, his good word, his good law, and they can't keep it. And so God finds fault with them. And so he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The problem is with the people. The people can't keep the covenant. And so the new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant. It's going to be enacted on better promises. And the promises are found in verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
We've seen the adjective eternal describe many ideas in the book of Hebrews, eternal salvation, eternal judgment, eternal redemption, eternal spirit, eternal inheritance, and now an eternal covenant, the new covenant, the new covenant spoken of here in in Hebrews chapter 8. That word eternal, it speaks not only to God's eternal plan to redeem a people through the cross, but it also speaks to the unbreakable nature of the new covenant. It's unbreakable. The old covenant was transitory. It was weak because the people were weak. It was written on stone tablets. It couldn't change human hearts. And we read in chapter 8, verse 13, of how the old covenant was obsolete and growing old and it was ready to vanish away. All of this weakness, all of this transitory nature of it was because it was inaugurated and perpetuated through the blood of of animal sacrifices. And so it could never actually take away sins. Those who, who sacrificed had to continue sacrificing year after year after year after year because those animal sacrifices could never actually accomplish redemption. But in contrast, the new covenant is better than the old Because as we studied in in Hebrews chapter 10, it's inaugurated by the blood of Jesus, the perfect son of God. It's a once for all time sacrifice that actually takes away the sins of the people. And this covenant is eternal because it will remain forever in perpetuity since it is established by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Moses may have sprinkled the blood of the covenant on the Israelites, but they rebelled. And so the prophets spoke of an eternal or everlasting covenant that God would make in the future. And that which he promised he has fulfilled. God has established a new and better covenant with his people through the blood of the eternal covenant in Christ. And this, the the wording here alludes to another passage in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 11 and 16, where... God is speaking of the coming king, and he says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. On that day, Yahweh their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. Again, how can we know How can we know that this covenant is eternal? How can we we have that that assurance? We still need the certainty that this redemption for us will remain. It's it's one thing to state it, but it's another thing to show it. How can we be so certain that God has accomplished redemption for his people through Christ? How do we know that the, the eternal covenant has been inaugurated? How can we know that it's for us? Notice again verse 20. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. That word by or through, it speaks to the reason why God raised Jesus from the dead. He raised him from the dead by or through, or we could even say because of, the blood of the eternal covenant. Tom Schreiner in his commentary said the word by designates the reason Jesus was raised from the dead. His resurrection vindicated his sacrifice, showing that God approved of the yielding of his life for others. You want certainty that the the blood of the eternal covenant is for you? Do you want certainty that that you can be right with God, that you can have reconciliation, that the God of peace is not just an abstract God, but he is the God of peace for you? Look to the resurrected Son of God. He died for sinners. How can we be sure of this? God has accepted his sacrifice and demonstrated his approval of it by bringing again from the dead Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. See, when Jesus died on the cross to the Romans, he looked like a criminal. 
When Jesus died on the cross, the Jews, he looked like he was abandoned by God. He was hanging on a tree. He was accursed. But in the resurrection, he is proved to be neither a criminal nor forsaken by God. Rather, he is the righteous one whose death actually was an atoning sacrifice for sinners. This is why the resurrection is so vital to Christianity. You can't just say, well, that was a myth. You can't just say, well, that that was unimportant. You can't just say, well, what they meant was Jesus is alive in our hearts. No, the, the physical, bodily resurrection of the Son of God is absolutely vital to Christianity. Not because it's just another miracle, but because it proves that the cross worked. Without the resurrection, the cross was just another Roman execution. And if the cross wasn't a substitutionary atonement for sin, then you are still dead in your sins. You are still under the wrath of God. You are still on your way to hell. But Christ is risen. The blood of Jesus has inaugurated the new covenant and forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to the world. We know that because Christ is alive. Let's put all these pieces together. The God of peace has accomplished this redemption for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we can be confident, certain of this truth, because it was by the blood of the eternal covenant that he did this. Now, what's the point in all of this? That if God has raised Jesus from the dead, and the entire point of the verse is to reemphasize the fact that he did if, if this is true, if God has raised Jesus from the dead, then he will certainly raise you. He will certainly raise you. Because this power that raised Jesus is the same power that God is working in us. The Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul prays that you, if you're a believer, would realize that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's working in you. If God has already shown his faithfulness to his promises by sending Christ to die for sinners and thus procuring the new covenant, and if he has already demonstrated his power by raising Jesus from the dead, then we can be absolutely certain that what the apostle is about to pray in verse 21 will happen. A.W. Pink, he wrote, If then he was brought back from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant, much more shall we be to say that God brought again from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep means he was raised not as a private person, but as the public representative of his people. The blood of the everlasting covenant was the meritorious cause as it was by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, and that we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, so it is according to the infinite value of his atoning blood that both the shepherd and his sheep are delivered from the grave. Are you trusting in Christ today? If you are, then you can have this certainty that God has accomplished perfect redemption for you through the blood of Jesus. And if you aren't trusting in Christ, why not? Why not? What what excuse could you possibly give for putting off today, turning from your sin and trusting in Christ? What, What other hope can you have, either in this life or in the next Even now, the Savior calls you to forsake your sin and trust in him. 
Even now you can pray that God would save you, not because of any good works, but based on the death of Christ on the cross for you. Don't put off looking to Jesus. This is a certainty. Every sinner who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Because God has accomplished redemption for his people through Jesus. That's certainty number one in this benediction. It serves as the foundational truth that ensures that the, the second point will be certain as well. Certainty number one is that God has accomplished redemption for you through Christ. Certainty number two is that God will complete his work in you through Christ. Verse 21 we now come to the very heart of the benediction prayer. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The threat of persecution the danger of false teachings, the temptation to leave the church, to fall away from the faith. I'm sure the, the five warning passages of the book of Hebrews have shaken them because I know that it's shaken some of you as well. Given all of these vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities that are still present today, how can these believers, how can you be confident in the outcome of your lives? Well, we see that God will equip you. Now, may the God of peace equip you. This is a word that means to put into a, a proper condition or to make complete or restore. It's used in the Gospels of the disciples mending their broken nets. It means that God will put right whatever is amiss in their spiritual lives, that he will supply them with what they need to live the Christian life. They're, they're shaken. They've endured suffering in the past, but now that suffering is starting again, that they're being persecuted again, that they're being tempted to leave the faith, they're, they're shaken and they're unsure and they're, they're in danger. And so the apostle's encouragement, the, the confidence that he's given, the certainty he's given is that wherever there, there's a rip, wherever there's a tear, God will, will mend it. God will equip it. Even more fascinating to me is that the author of Hebrews has already used this word in the book. But not in the place that you might expect. It's actually in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. You can just flip over a few pages and you can, you can find this. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. It's the word that's translated in chapter 13 as equip. And notice what, what this body that's prepared for the Son of God is for. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. These saints... You do not have the power to do all that God has commanded you to do in your own strength. You're not going to just do the best you can. You're not gonna, you're not gonna try hard enough to please God. That, that's, that's simply not going to do. But the same God who prepared a body for Jesus in order that he might do the will of God is the same God who will equip or prepare you to do his will also. The, the same power, again, that, that was working in Christ, it's the same power that is working in you. That's why verse 20 is vital to this prayer. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you now to equip you and cause you to do everything that is pleasing, everything that is good in God's sight. This is union with Christ. Jesus has secured all of the blessings of the new covenant. The law, 
written on the mind and hearts of believers. This unbreakable relationship with God as he is our God and we are his people. This this knowledge of him. All of them, every one of them will know the Lord. The forgiveness of sins. All of this. Jesus has secured all of these benefits, all of these blessings of the new covenant for you. And this means that verse 21 must be true. It must be true. Otherwise, Jesus hasn't secured all of the benefits of the new covenant. But since he has, all of verse 21 is necessarily true for you. And I hope that you'll see in the text that it's more than just God giving us the tools we need to work for him. He is himself actually working in us. He's actually working in us. He, he doesn't just give you the tools and say, good luck. He equips you and then he works in you to do it. Look at what it says. He equips you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He is working in you so that you might work. The Legacy Standard Bible, it renders it literally. He equips you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight. We do because of what God has done. We do because of what God is continuing to do in us. This is the dual realities of God's divine sovereignty on one hand and and human responsibility on the other that we see all throughout the Bible. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 are the, the premier passage for us to look at where the apostle Paul, he writes, Therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is something that you have to do. You have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the the wonderful mystery of the Christian life is that you are called to do You are called to work. You're called to obey. But God is the one working in you. And not just to work. The Apostle Paul in Philippians, he says, he also is the one willing you. He's also the one who's giving you the desire to work for his good pleasure. You work because God is working in you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. This this famous passage for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that's divine sovereignty God does this God has prepared good works Good works in advance that we should walk in them. That's you. God has done everything. Now you must walk in good works. But the confidence that we have is that God is the one that is working in us so that we can do this. And we could go on and on and on. 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 John chapter 5. God is doing this work. So work. God is doing in you. So do. And God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That you will do. And he is working or or doing in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That phrase, that which is pleasing in his sight, is important for you to note because it's the fulfillment of chapter 12, verse 28. You can go back up. You probably are on the same page. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And now here in verse 21, we're told that God will equip us with everything good that you may do as will, working in us that which is pleasing. Same word. This is the fulfillment of 1228. In 1228, we're to offer to God acceptable or pleasing worship. And that acceptable worship is everything that we've seen in chapter 13, verses 1 through 19. Love for the brethren, showing hospitality, remembering those who are suffering for Christ, honoring, loving, cherishing marriage, keeping marriage pure and holy, not loving money, Remembering your leaders of the past, imitating their faith. Keep following Jesus. Go outside the camp and suffer the, the same kind of reproach that Jesus suffered. Obey and submit to your leaders. In other words, persevere in the faith. And the confidence, the certainty we have is that he will work in us through Christ to accomplish all that's been written here persevering faith and obedience. You may feel like a complete failure. You've fallen into that sin one too many times. You failed to, to witness to that coworker when the opportunity arises again. You struggle. Consistent Bible reading, consistent prayer. It's hard. It's 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 tough. You may have been following us through the book of Hebrews and, and you come to places and you're saying, I, I don't know how to do this. I, I'm struggling. I, I feel weak. I feel helpless. Verse 21 is hope for you. Verse 21 is hope for you. Not, not hope in this abstract, ethereal way. Hope Concrete hope for you. Christ has died for sinners. Christ has died for sinners. He has inaugurated the eternal new covenant in his blood. And God has raised him from the dead. And now Jesus is able to save to the uttermost anybody who comes to him through faith alone. Because he is a living, powerful Savior. And he will finish the work that he starts in you. He will bring it to completion. He will equip you and he will empower you. He will work in you to do everything that is pleasing and acceptable in his sight. And so keep your eyes on Jesus. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep following him. Keep going. Keep obeying him. Because you know that God has accomplished all of this for you. And he will complete all of it in you. And he will do this for his eternal glory. That's how this benediction ends. To whom be glory forever and ever. This benediction, it ends with a doxology. So the benediction is a prayer for us and the doxology is a prayer of praise to God. That's how this benediction ends. There's a question as to who the to whom refers Jesus is the nearest referent. However, I think it's more likely that the apostle is referring to God the Father here. And I say this because if you go back up to verse 15 and 16, we can see the same idea. Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
How do we offer these pleasing sacrifices? We do it through Jesus. And how is God glorified? It's through Jesus. Given all the things that God has done. All the things that we've seen throughout this book. Having compassion and and mercy on us and sending his only begotten son to die for our sins by raising him from the dead for our justification, by installing him as our great high priest who intercedes for us forever, by equipping us for all good works, who works in us even now. How how should we respond to all of these things? By ascribing praise and honor and glory to God the Father and to him alone through Jesus Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit forever and ever. And what's so important for us to recognize here at the end of this benediction is that our perseverance is a matter of God's glory. Your perseverance is a matter of God's glory. Uh, Notice how how this, this benediction works. We see what God has done objectively. We see what he is continuing to do. And we see that it's all wrapped up in him getting glory forever and ever. Amen. And so if he doesn't do verse 21, he's robbed of some of his glory. Your perseverance is is. A matter of God's glory, his fame is wrapped up in the future and final salvation of his people. If any of his people, if any of those for whom Christ suffered and died, if any of those for whom Christ is ever living and interceding for as their high priest, if any of them should have failed to reach eternal glory, then God will have failed to accomplish all of his good purposes for us in Christ. But our hope, as we can think back to Hebrews chapter 6, is in the God who cannot change and in the God who cannot lie. And as God cannot fail to accomplish all of his purposes, then none of his people can ever fail to reach his rest. Those who are in Christ will with certainty, persevere to the very end. They have to. They have to. God's glory is at stake. But God will be glorified. And so his people will reach glory through Christ. Tom Schreiner again says, since the readers have Jesus as their great shepherd and Lord, and since by virtue of his sacrificial death, they have been forgiven of their sins. And since Jesus now reigns as the risen Lord, they can be confident that the prayer uttered here will be answered. This is our confident hope. God has accomplished redemption for us in the past through the finished work of Christ. And because he has done this, we can be confident that God will complete his work of redemption in us through Christ. Brothers and sisters, memorize these verses. Memorize these verses. Rehearse these verses. Recite these verses. Think upon these verses. Don't let them slip away and and be forgotten when we're dismissed because, well, now it's time to eat. Be strengthened by this prayer, by having it in your mind and, and on your heart. And if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, you need to know that this, this prayer isn't yet true for you. That you can't, You can't garner hope from this prayer if you're not in Christ. This is only for believers. But there is a Savior. There is a Savior. There's a risen Savior who will save you if you would only believe. So before you leave, 
right now, even before I'm done. Cry out to God. Cry out to God through faith in Jesus alone and ask him to save you. And the promise that we have in the Bible is that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be saved. And if you'd like to talk about this after the church service, the elders are here. You can simply turn to any of the members in the pew beside you and just ask them, what must I do to be saved? What, what must I do to turn from my sin and trust in Christ? Remember that a benediction is more than just a prayer wish. Through the apostles, a benediction expresses the confident assurance that this will happen. Christian, God has done great things for you. I think a lot of our discouragement and our hopelessness and our sadness, probably our anger and discontentment in this world, is because we simply fail to meditate upon the gospel more. God has done this for you. He has raised... Christ, the blood of the eternal covenant shed for sinners like you. You can have hope. And we can have hope in verse 21 that God is continuing to do this in you. God will finish his work. He will sanctify you completely. God will bring you safely home to glory. This is a sure hope that you have in the gospel. So don't fall away. Don't fall away. Don't, don't, don't be tricked by this world into thinking that there's something else. That there's something better that there's something that you have to do to be made right with God. Christ is enough. So keep the faith. Hold on to Jesus. Despite trials and hardships and persecution and abandonment and temptation, keep trusting in Jesus. And we can sing, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it reminds us of the gospel. God, how easily we forget. How quickly we are enticed by lesser things. We, we trivialize what you've done. We, we, we minimize it. We, we think we're, we've been a Christian for so long, we, we don't need to be thinking about the gospel this much. We, we move on to, to deeper things, to other things. God, I thank you that over and over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews, we have been pulled back to that central, all-important message that Christ has died for sinners and that we have access to you, to the throne of grace through the blood of Christ alone. I pray that everyone in here will be believing on Christ. And I pray for those who are yet to trust in him, to, to yet make a, a public profession of faith. 
I pray, God, that your spirit would work in them even now, convicting them, opening up blind eyes, softening hard hearts, granting repentance and faith. And I pray that you'll do this for your glory. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they might be encouraged, that they might be hopeful as we've been reminded that what you've done for us in the past, you are continuing to work in us for your good pleasure and you will complete your work in us. We thank you, God, for the hope that we have. I pray that you will build up this church and we pray you'll do this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.